great panel. I'm Ginny Fay. I'm an economist with um, the Institute of Social and Economic Research at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And we have um, five panelists up here. We're actually going to be doing four presentations. I'm going to introduce them, and they'll each have about 10 minutes or so to give their presentations. And then the hope is that that'll leave us some time to um, do a longer discussion with some questions and answers. And this is the energy efficiency, how far will it get us? And our first panelists that um, I'm going to introduce people in alphabetical order, and then we're going to um, start off with Steve Colt, who I'm going to introduce first, because his name begins with C. And um, he's also a fellow economist at, um, at ICER. And he is um, PhD at MIT, has been studying energy in Alaska since about 1985, when I originally met him, which shows that we're some of the old folks around here. And um, the next person to his right, your left, is um, Jay Hemerson. He is with NANA. And you guys are going to have to correct me if I get any of this wrong when you come up. And he is working with um, AEA on the end use study. And I guess actually he's actually the manager of the Alternative Energy and Sustainable Development with WH Pacific, which is a NANA development corporation. And then um, after, down from him is Sarab Pathan, and I think um, um, Gwen introduced him this morning. He is an economist who has a joint position now with ICER and the Alaska Center for Energy and Power at University of Alaska Fairbanks. He is going to be talking about the weatherization program. And then farther down we have Dan Reitz. I hope he's saying his name wrong, right. And, um, He's an engineer and the director of operations and development for the um, DEHE, which is the Division of Environmental Health and Energy, if I have that right. Um, he's a professional engineer with 28 ex years of experience working on sanitation projects in rural Alaska. And Carl Remley is also a colleague of his. He's a mechanical engineer um, with doing energy projects, and he has also over 30 years of experience also working with um, auditing water systems and their energy use in rural Alaska. So without further ado, I'm going to um, start things off with Steve. Okay, thank you, Jenny. Uh, just so I can avoid boring too many people, how many of you were here yesterday when I spoke about this? Okay, so this will be a, a highly repetitive um, from what I did yesterday, and it'll be a, a little bit different, but not a whole lot different. So I apologize, and who knows, you might want to go get more cookies while I talk, if you went yesterday. Um, so. I think I've been trying to figure out what the message is that I want to convey as the bottom line of this uh, little walk we're going to take through some data and some numbers. And I think, I think I've come up with the bottom line, although I'm never sure, but I think the bottom line is that the, it's critical as we look at opportunities for efficiency and down the road innovative technologies to keep the uh, space heating and transportation end uses 
front and center, right up there with electricity when we think about rural energy and what we can do. And it's my opinion, um, it's sort of a, a friendly, friendly criticism of the way things have evolved in this state because there's good reasons for it, but nonetheless, it's my opinion that we have focused quite a lot on electricity in the past 20 years, and it's really time to broaden the focus beyond electricity if we want to really get somewhere with reducing diesel consumption. So this picture of, uh, that I took in Hooper Bay is a good one, I think, for, for pointing out that there's a lot more to the energy picture than electricity. Sure, you've got the, the power poles, but you've also got the houses, which need to be heated, and you've got snow machines and ATVs and even dogs for transportation, and they all need to be energized in their own way. And as I said, the reason why we care about this right now, uh, the, big, the big picture for the, the whole energy system, is that we're going to want to be making efficiency improvements and targeting our efficiency efforts where they have the highest return. Now, as everybody pretty much knows, most PCE places, which is sort of how I've defined my, that's how I've defined my study area for my analysis, is diesel dependent. And the question that I've posed for myself is, where does all this diesel go? And it's an interesting question because we have very little data outside the electricity part of the, part of the puzzle. So the question really boils down to this. It's what does this pie chart look like where orange is electricity, red is space heat, and green is transportation? How much of the total diesel fuel that comes into those tanks is going to which, into which um, part of the energy picture for the community? Does, it, does the pie look like this where electricity is using up maybe 75%? Or does the pie look something like this, where space heat is using half of it? Or does the pie look like something else? And at, at the start, I've already mentioned that it, it matters for choosing the best uh, efficiency improvements. And later on, I think, uh, in another 10 or 15 years, although I said this 10 or 15 years ago, and I'm saying it again, but I'll, I'll still say it again. In another 10 or 15 years, we may be farther, much farther down the, down the road at integrating electricity production with energy storage and, and uh, energy use that goes across um, what have been separate sectors. So we might use wind power to store heat which could then be used for space heat in the form of uh, electricity. We might use wind power to make hydrogen and store that. We might use hydrogen to fuel an ATV or a snow machine, or we might uh, have a, some kind of plug-in electric vehicle. I'm, I'm, I, have, I believe, I haven't seen it, but there are electric um, ATVs and, and small engines out there, at least in the experimental stages. So it matters to, to be aware of the whole picture when we start talking about integrated systems. So and I'm going to just walk through, and then I'll be out of time, 
what I've been able to uncover about this total energy use pie. And my presentation will be available on, I guess it'll be the website for this conference, so you can come back and get these slides and these numbers later if you don't want to struggle to write them, you know, to write them all down. So we'll, we'll start with electricity because this is the easy part where we have really good data as a byproduct of the PCE program. And if you convert it all into gallons of diesel fuel that are going into the generators and express it on a per person basis, which is how I'll be talking for the rest of my 10 minutes, you get um, a total of about 350, 347 gallons of diesel is going into electricity and but my best guess, and this, these are all averages, is that about a third of it is for residential use and about two-thirds of it is for non-residential use. That may surprise you, but one of the reasons for that is that we've got not only schools, which are big electricity users, but we've also got our water treatment and sewage treatment plants, and we're going to hear more about that today, how much electricity those plants are capable of sucking up, uh, at least if they're not carefully tended to. So that's electricity. We'll see the number come back again in, in the pie later on. Now we consider buildings. And here the, the, uh, the task gets a lot more difficult and complicated because buildings come in all shapes and sizes and there's no systematic collection of really any data about how much how much fuel buildings use for space heat and, and water heat, but basically space heat. So only in about the last five years have we been able to learn anything systematic about buildings, and that's because of the uh, home energy rebate program, the weatherization program, all collected into the so-called ARIS database by AHFC. And, uh, even more recently, in fact, just uh, about a month or so ago, we started to get data in on, on uh, actual electric and oil bills for non-residential buildings due to another effort by HFC to basically expand the home energy rebate program into things other than homes. So what have we been able to learn? Well, this is a pretty interesting uh, scatter plot, I think, from the home energy rebate program. And I eliminated all the data from urban Alaska. And you're left with about 800 houses that were, that were looked at pretty carefully as, as uh, participants in the program. And that's the blue diamonds. There's about 900 little blue diamonds. Each one of those is a home that was very carefully uh, looked at and put through the uh, ACWARM home energy rating program. And I think there's, well, there's a lot of things we can see from this graph if we spend enough time with it. But I think the main message is how sort of all over the map the blue diamonds are, how much variation there is in the energy use. I wouldn't worry about the units or anything. It's just the, the kind of the scatter of the picture is the main message. And what I'm trying to do here, the reason the black lines slope up, is I'm trying to compare total energy use to the size of the house. 
most obvious possible comparison, bigger house uses more space heating fuel. But it's a, it's a comparison that is uh, what we would say statistically very weak, meaning that the blue dots are still all over the place, even if you pick any particular size of house to look at. The other interesting thing about this is, and it's sort of a byproduct of, of my research because I'm not directly looking at it, but the red squares are for a smaller sample of about 100 houses that have actually been through the retrofit uh, improvement process, which is the focus of the, the home energy rebate program. And the data very clearly show that that program has saved significant amounts of energy. Uh, I just, just uh, ran the calculation 10 minutes ago, and it works out to about um, 300 gallons per house per year, 300 gallons a year per house of savings on average from this program in the PCE places. Mm. And that's the difference between the, the uh, upper black line and the lower black line. And you see they're parallel. And basically the, the, the vertical distance between those two black lines works out to about 300, 330 gallons uh, a year per house that was um, weatherized and otherwise improved. So that's what I learned about a residential buildings, and we'll see these, these numbers will come back into that pie chart at the end. Here's another uh, sample from a different data source, an, actu an actual field trip by Toby Schwerer, my colleague. And again, the main message is the scatter. How much variation there is in usage per household, even after you adjust for the size of the house. So it's very difficult to generalize about, about this stuff. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind when, when we're thinking about how to proceed, that every house really is different. And here's an example uh, of why that can be the case. And the, and the why is behavior. So I, just by dumb luck, I, I chanced on uh, two, two housing units that were looked at carefully, and, and as far as I can tell, they're identical structures. Teacher housing, same place, built the same year, same size. I'm assuming that they're identical structures, which means we can rule out the size of the house, the climate, and also the shell, building shell characteristics. Unless, unless maybe I'm missing something, one was weatherized and one wasn't. But I don't like that explanation. I like the explanation that there's something going on with behavior that makes one of them have an electric consumption more than twice as high as the other. And, it's, and that's another thing to, to really uh, keep in mind and kind of interesting. Here's the blue dots for non-residential buildings. And here, um, Without going into too much detail, because I don't have time, I will just say again, tremendous uh, scatter of the data. And the vertical axis here is gallons of fuel per square foot, Okay, not total gallons. Even after you adjust for the size of the building and express it on a per square foot basis, you still have this huge scatter of, uh, of consumption, although the, the, and the average uh, in repeated 
uh, looks at different data sets comes up around, around uh, 0.8 gallons per square foot and sometimes more closer to one gallon per square foot, which is a nice number to work with. But again, the, the take home is the scatter. And here's uh, an example of even more scatter, but it has some logic to it. It's a school sample. We were able to sort of cobble together. And the goal here was to try to express fuel consumption on, a, on the basis of the number of students, because that would allow you to easily, more easily estimate consumption um, based on enrollment. And what this data show is that sure enough, very small schools use a lot of gallons of fuel per student, and uh, bigger schools use significantly less per student because they're, they have more volume uh, per unit of surface area and because you can have uh, uh, some of the same spaces you need them whether you have very few students or whether you have a lot of students. So this is a little summary that starts to get to my take home about how important the non-electricity part of the puzzle is. This is the um, summary of 87 non-residential buildings where data have just come in on actual build fuel consumption and on average 62% of the uh, diesel that's going into powering and heating these buildings is going for the heat side of it. There's big variation, but the average is um, what it is. And I think I will skip that slide. And then the last thing I want to talk about is transportation, which is the thing that we actually know the least about. Whoops, spilling the beans. <laughs> In transportation, we have very, very few data points. And, and really, the only data set we have was collected in uh, four communities in northwest Alaska last March, again by my colleague, uh, Toby Schwer. He's a real hero for doing this. And he sat down and actually talked to people at some length about what kind of vehicles they have and how and when they use them. And that provides the basis for what really is just a first initial estimate of transportation use broken down by type of vehicle. And that's something that um, I've been trying to push with some, uh, a few other people in the sort of energy policy community is, is collecting data however we can on the kinds of vehicles that are out there and, and eventually on how they're, how they're used. But for starters, just collecting some information on who owns how many of, of what. So um, that's been, that's my very fast walkthrough of the, of the kind of data that are coming in now, really for the first time ever. And what it leads us to is the pie, the pie question that I posed to you at the beginning. And here's my best estimate of how the pie breaks out for, again, this is averaged over all PCE communities. The pie sort of speaks for itself, and we can further break it down into, um, oh, this was, the, this was the estimated pie back in 2005. And in some, in some cases, I was pretty close. In other cases, I was not close at all. And it's probably not worth dwelling on. But here's the more 
detailed breakdown of the, the current pie. And there's, I think you can take from this what you will, but um, one of the things maybe that stands out to me the most is the relative, relatively small share of the total pie that's residential electricity. Um, and the relatively large share of the pie, again, that's heat and transportation. And so it seems to me that heat and transportation are, could well provide uh, big opportunities for efficiency improvements if we want to pursue them. And the last, um, the last way I've broken out this pie, I've rearranged the slices so that all the residential, was there, is this a pointer, Jay? I think it is. I'll probably turn something off. So, um, no, I think it's a remote, not a pointer. But if you look at the slices, the residential ones going around clockwise from 12 o'clock, the residential slices are the first three, and they make up about 58% of the total, and then the non-residential slices are the other 42%. So there's a take-home here, I think, which may or may not be surprising, depending on your own personal experience, that uh, the residential sector offers a big, a big opportunity. And I would suggest that it's a much bigger opportunity out in the PCE communities than it is in Anchorage or an urban place, where residential is much less important and, and commercial may offer some of the biggest opportunities. But in the PCE places, there's a really big opportunity, uh, starting with residential heat and then moving into residential transportation to really affect the total uh, amount of gallons that people are forced to buy and pay for. So that's uh, the end of my talk. I've probably gone over. I apologize. And you can find this kind of stuff on the Institute of Social and Economic Research website. And this presentation will also be archived and made available with all the other conference presentations. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I uh, will talk about home energy rebate program preliminary evaluation results. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Martin is the PI, and I got enormous help from Natalia Udovic, who is sitting over there in the corner. First, the background of this program. We, ha we can get maximum $10,000 rebate, not more than that. And for that, there are pre-assessment and post-assessment fee. Pre-assessment fee can get rebate up to $325, and the post-assessment is only $175. The qualification for this program is you have to own the house, you have to reside in the house for the year long, and you cannot participate in low-income program and weatherization 
and home energy rebate program in the same time. The methods, we, we used 7,087 7, households, and the time period was last two years, 2009 and 2010. And the regions, there's nine AHFC regions, I'll explain that later. And the methods we use, economic and financial analysis, net present value, and average and sum. Uh, I'll be able to explain only the economic evaluation and net present value, average sum, is gonna take a long time. We don't have that much time. The issues with the analysis was the data we collected from IRIS database, some of those data, we, we can just tell right away that those are wrongly entered. Like some data had more than $10,000 rebate. Some data had more than $325 pre-assessment fee or more than 175 post-assessment fee. So we need to get rid, of, get rid of this data. And also some had like just zero value or maybe negative values. So you cannot have negative rebate. So we got rid of those data too. And another issue was estimating the total social benefits and, and long-term avoided cost. Total social benefits is because of the lower, weather, uh, lower energy bill, you have more residual income. What do you do with residual income? You spend on something else. So you create more employment. Or maybe you save that money, send your kids to school. So you benefit from that. So those things were kind of hard to calculate. So I stick with financial data only. <clears throat> well, there are two kind of expenditures we took into account. One is only the rebate, $10,000 plus $500 assessment fees. And the total expenditure, like some people spend more than $10,000 uh, for the reconstruction, but they get only $10,000 rebate. So what happens with the rest of the money? How much benefits do we get from that? and we calculate a simple payback period from those two accounts. The preliminary findings is direct household savings exceed AHFC expenditures in all regions. That means AHFC is doing a good job. And, and energy savings is pretty high, and CO2 reduction was also pretty high, so that was a pretty good finding. That was showing that the, energy, uh, the weatherization program is actually working. And as I talked about the region studies, and we used nine AHFC regions. The ARIES database had like maybe 21 regions. And on their data dictionary, the AHFC regions was not explained. So we just used our own judgment to assign ARIES regions to AHFC regions. So we came up with nine regions instead of like 20, 21 regions. And what we got from those, the preliminary regional results vary significantly. This is the energy savings versus direct expenditures ratio analysis. The number of houses for Anchorage was like 880 for 2009. I divided in 2009 and 2010 instead of doing it all together. But few regions like interior, western, or northern, southwest, they have only few houses there. Uh, there's a one reason probably that we need to get rid of some data, probably those houses got eliminated from there, or probably they did so only a few houses there. And you can see the energy savings versus direct cost ratio with AHFC expenditures. That AHFC expenditures is $10,000 rebate plus $500 assessment fees, so $10,500.
and the energy savings versus the direct cost with total weatherization expenditures, uh, you can, okay, sorry, 2009 and 2010, they look the same. Okay, so you can see this cost is all the, the entire program cost. By program cost, I mean how much the owner of the house paid. Some of them paid $20,000, some of them $25,000, some of them say $12,000. I saw some data, they paid like $50,000 to get the job done. And you can see that because of the lower cost from AHFC, the ratio is higher for, there's a pointer. You see 1.6 is for Anchorage, and with the total cost, it's like only 1.0. And you can see that Fairbanks is doing pretty good. Their ratio is 1.1, and with the total cost 3.5, still it's a lot higher than Anchorage or some other regions. And it's true for 2010 and 2009 for both. Fairbanks doing pretty good compared to Anchorage. Uh, once again, this is just the financial data the social, social benefit we couldn't calculate yet. It's a working paper, we're gonna calculate it later. So it may seem pretty low, but it may go, go up once we add those other social benefits. And this is the payback period based on only AHFC expenditures. It's, it's gonna take, for, it's like 2009 and 10 together. Uh, for Anchorage, it's gonna take 9.6 years, and Fairbanks only 2.1 years. And to 2010, they did even better. Anchor, uh, Fairbanks is only 1.7 years. Our Anchorage is 7.3, and everything else in between. And it's for two, uh, payback period for the total expenditures. You can see the total expenditure is always higher, so the payback period should be higher too. So if we go back previous slide, you see Anchorage is 9.6 years, and here is 15.7 years, because a lot of people are spending uh, way too much money trying to fix their houses, and the payback period gonna be a lot higher. And this is the energy savings in terms of dollar value. As Steve said that he also found that the energy savings is pretty high, and I also found the same data. It's based on the post-authorization audits, and you can see that average energy savings per household. Once again, the Fairbanks is on the top, right next to Northern region. Anchorage is $741 per year for 2009. And 2010 is pretty close. Once again, you can see the data is pretty much same. Anchorage, Northern, and Fairbanks, they're saving more than anyone else, 3,576. And this is the carbon dioxide reduction. This average CO2 reduction per household. This is also based on the post-assessment so you can see the Fairbanks Northern Region, they're saving nine, say 15,000 and 19,000 pounds of carbon dioxide per household on average. That's 2009, and 2010 it gets a little worse. Like, see the Fairbanks are 15,000. Now, uh, Fairbanks got up actually, and Anchorage doing better here from 12,000 to 13,000. And there are a lot of things, this is a working paper, so there are a lot of things still we need to consider. Like, we work only with the 
home energy rebate program. There's another weatherization program that is low income. We need to work on that once we get the data from the ARIES database. <clears throat> and other potential benefits we didn't calculate yet, like green jobs, how many jobs have been created. So we need to calculate that too. And also, I think this is also very important, the very last one. For the weatherization program, the thing we calculated, all this calculation was entire savings, entire cost. But what happens to the individual components? If you fix your windows, if you fix your roof, how much you can save from those individual components? We'll be working on that once we get the data. And, uh, and if you need any more information, you can contact me or go to the website. Uh, that's all. Was the question again? The anchorage, anchorage was really low on the scale yeah. at first, but then when you broke CO2 at way high, I guess I thought natural gas was relatively clean burning, but do you know why it's straight up the scale? Because the average house in Anchorage uses a lot more energy compared to other places. Yeah, it's cheap, but there's lots. Great, thank you. Okay. And Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Carl Remley, and uh, my colleague and boss, uh, Dan Wrights, is also going to help me with this presentation. We're going to talk today about uh, the energy program that we have going on at ANTHC. There's two significant reasons we decided this was important for us at ANTHC, DE. Uh, recently, a article was published entitled Living in Utility Scarcity, Energy and Water Insecurity in Northwest Alaska. It was published in the American Journal for Public Health and it found there's a very uh, direct correlation between energy costs and public health. Unfortunately, it's an inverse relationship, whereas energy costs rise, public health suffers. And that's uh, certainly not the direction that ANTHC would like to see it go. Uh, the other reason is we took a look uh, a year or so ago at the energy, uh, the total operating costs of our water and sewer systems across the state. This is a summary of eight of them, and as you can see, in some cases the energy costs are over half of the operating costs of the total water and sewer system. As a result of those two things and our desire to increase the sustainability of rural Alaska, we uh, embarked on our energy program. 
There's three significant uh, parts to it right now. The blue dots are the uh, communities doing energy audits in. The red dots are the heat recovery efforts that we have ongoing right now. And the uh, yellow, or I guess it's yellow, is the renewable energy efforts that we have going on. We can talk a little bit about each of those. We're doing energy audits in 40 communities around the state. Uh, they, it's a fairly geographically diverse uh, base of areas, although there are more in western Alaska. Doing about 15 or so different waste heat recovery projects. Implementing energy efficiency upgrades in uh, the uh, uh, five of the 40 communities and doing some renewable energy work. And by the way, I forgot to mention uh, when I started the piece of paper that was handed out uh, when you walked in is uh, from Dan. It's a little test, and he has promised great prizes for whoever does the best on his little test. Energy audits uh, in communities. Uh, as most of you know, traditional energy audits look at air leakage, insulation, heating systems, electrical usage, and lighting. Well, that gets a lot more complex very, very quickly when you start getting into water and sewer systems. Uh, we've got, in some cases, million-gallon water storage tanks that if they freeze can destroy the uh, tank and also shut down the water system as can a freeze up of the circulation system throughout the village. The uh, sewer systems often have uh, the same type of um, issues. So that's uh, just overall much more complex. So you've got kind of uh, conflicting goals there. One is to keep the energy costs as low as possible, but the other is to make sure you don't have catastrophic failures. We've completed uh, and delivered reports for seven of the of the villages and, and the energy audits we're doing are so they're tribal grants. Uh, so we're looking at all the tribal buildings, the health clinics, and the water and sewer systems. So we finished seven so far. We're in the middle of nine right now, got significantly more to finish. We're gonna talk a little bit about our results to date to see uh, to show you some trends that we're seeing. The red line here is the audited energy expenses uh, when we first went there, and the purple line is the potential savings. So as you can see, there are cases where we can actually more than cut the energy consumption in half. The savings are both electrical and fuel, but the because the processes are so uh, heat intensive and most of that heat is generated by oil. Uh, the oil savings potential is greater. The two very high ones there are potential uh, heat recovery projects. As I'm sure most of you know, it's not wise to implement a project if the uh, implementation cost is greater than the long-term savings and in, uh, we're not finding that to be the case at all, so they're, they're all justified projects. This is some sample recommendations out of uh, an audit we did in uh, Ambler, uh, not Ambler, in uh, Sulawak. And uh, we found uh, significant issues there. They're rated in terms of uh, the best options first, just like ACWARM does, and uh, 
as you can see at the top there, there's some operational changes that can save a significant amount of money with no real investment. One of the things we looked at in this particular village was uh, along the lines of uh, the earlier presentation we had. Uh, when we went into Selowick, we found that 19% of the total amount of energy that's being spent in the entire village was spent on water and sewer system. And that does not include the residential portion at the household, just the portion uh, at the water and sewer plants. The uh, measures that we identified and are presently being implemented will drive that 19% down to about 11%. So there's, as I mentioned, uh, great savings potential there. So one of the issues becomes where does that savings go? And it turns out that about two-thirds of it will stay in the village and in this case uh, be utilized to reduce the water and sewer rates to the end users. But there's also about a third of it that's PCE savings. That would be savings to the state. We're also planning on some improvements to the heat recovery system there. If we look at the seven that we completed so far, I averaged the results just to give you a feel for the trends that we're seeing. It, uh, the average energy cost is about $75,000 uh, per water and sewer system that we've looked at. Uh, they do have a wide range on them. The annual savings potential is in the range of $38,000 or about an average of 50%, which is a, a great, great um, number. The implementation cost to get those savings is in the range of $237,000 for a simple payback of six years. And that does not include the uh, PCE savings of about $13,000 per year to the state. So in this case, uh, energy efficiency can take us a long way, and, I, and I've really been glad to hear even people from the wind uh, group saying that we need to do energy conservation and energy efficiency measures first, and I think this is a great example of that. In order to keep going, uh, we, we've got a significant backlog of, of what we're doing right now, but we don't have, in most cases, the money that we need to uh, implement the conservation measures. We're working with the individual villages. Their uh, work is being done under tribal grants, so we're working with the tribal councils, and we'll continue to do so to try to find the money to get the ones implemented that we can't afford to. We need to continually uh, educate the system operators regarding the cost of energy, the importance of energy, and the importance of energy conservation. Uh, we also feel strongly that because of the trends that we're seeing, uh, that uh, this issue has fallen through the crack a bit on the, both the state and federal level. Uh, it needs to be re-emphasized. We're doing what we can to uh, make people more aware of it. Uh, and so what we would like to see is a continuation of this project to look at uh, more uh, or all of the water and sewer systems in rural Alaska. One of the things we uh, have not looked at is there, in some cases, can be a significant cost to the individual homeowner that uh, is beyond the scope of what we're doing right now, where the service lines come out of the ground or the sewer goes into the ground. Uh, that often has to be heated, and that cost is borne by the uh, residential homeowner or the business. And finally, we'd uh, like 
to look in and are looking into more efficient systems and operation of those systems. Some other activities we have going on, uh, uh, we have a uh, energy deployment uh, or deployment of a little energy display that we're working with uh, Mirad AVAC on uh, for 1,600 homes in rural Alaska and uh, AVCP is a partner of ours as well and all together is about 4,000 homes where we'll be putting uh, displays that will help individual homeowners learn and, and conserve energy. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got four villages where we are funded to implement some upgrades uh, that are not part of the uh, TED program. Our AREC group, which is a, a group within ANTHC that operates uh, some of the plans, is working to implement our audit results uh, on an operational basis where they can and uh, if they can fund small cost stuff, uh, low-hanging fruit out of their operating budget, they're doing that. Our designs, uh, our design group is uh, much more focused on energy now than they were 20 th or 30 years ago. We're in the process or just put a uh, heat pump in Saxman, doing a whole bunch of heat recovery projects and some biomass projects to reduce the overall cost. This is a picture of the little display a summary of, uh, or a list of the current heat recovery uh, efforts. Some of these are just con, uh, finishing up. We are going to Good News Bay on Thursday to start that system up. And we've got some other ones we finished this summer. For renewable energy activities, uh, we got some seed money from EPA to do some pilot demonstration projects. It looks like we're gonna do a wind turbine uh, the heat project at, a wa at the water plant in uh, Good News Bay. We're doing a biomass project in Elam, uh, along with some monitoring. Hopefully we're gonna do some water heating, some solar water heating project. Uh, we have uh, been working with AVEC to, they, in their wind generation, they've got at least four villages where they're generating more wind than they can actually use. So our goal there is uh, to take that wind energy and use it uh, to generate heat in the water plant to uh, reduce our, again, reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, those four projects were submitted for round five of the renewable energy application. And now uh, Dan's gonna continue on and thank you very much. Hi, I'm Dan Wrights with ANTHC. Um, how do you, how do you, how do you this stuff? Okay, um, the little quiz you got, um, we have 10 copies of, uh, autographed copies of Chris Kiana's Fly Fishing in Alaska book coming to us tomorrow. And if you answer the questions right and turn it in, then you'll be put in for a drawing unless we don't have 10 people with the right answers. So you can get it from my talk or you can, even, you can come over to our table and ask us and we'll give you the answers. So anyway. Um, what we did this summer, to, uh, a little bit beyond this, was we did a survey. We wanted to find out how big a problem um, or an issue energy is with the water systems in Alaska. We basically uh, took down, we, we, we took down uh, information primarily in the Arctic areas. Uh, we have four basic types of systems. Uh, water systems with circulating water, vacuum sewer, water and gravity, washeterias, and kind of a conventional hall. And we wanted to, uh, I was looking for a predictive model so we could say, if you have so many people, how much energy are you gonna spend? 
uh, all our data, there's so much variability out there that they uh, kind of look like Mr. Coles here, kind of a shotgun blast, and uh, statistically, I couldn't, I couldn't do much with it. So uh, I couldn't get that predictive model that I was looking for. So I'm going to just show you what we found here with this. Um, first, I want to tell you a little bit, the source of the information, uh, the energy audits Carl did, we used those, we considered those good. Um, the AREC has pretty good data and information on electricity and fuel usage. AVEC uh, worked with us. They have a lot of good electrical data. Was horrible trying to get data about fuel use. It just, it, it's not done. We, we, so we kind of got telephone. We got reports by telephone from city official, village official, kind of anywhere we could, uh, anywhere we could find it. So, so I put a slide in there about data quality, about, uh, it wasn't, this wasn't intended to be a highly scientific effort, more kind of a look at the order magnitude of the problem out there. So again, the uh, fuel oil usage, uh, one of our outcomes is we really ought to meter fuel oil out um, in our new, newer projects. This is, uh, <laughs> this is just for people that aren't uh, uh, aware, this is a kind of a schematic of a vacuum uh, a, a water sewer system. I wanted to explain why it takes so much energy for those who aren't working in the field. This is essentially kind of a schematic of St. Michael's, Alaska. We have a water source out here about five miles from town that uh, the water's heated up to somewhere around 80 degrees in the wintertime when it's really cold so that it can make it out the other end without freezing up. So that's quite an energy consumer right there. Uh, it's got to be heated here, circulated to the water tanks, and then as it gets delivered to the homes, it has to be circulated around and around and around where it gets heated. Within this utilidor, that's the box that's above the ground, you have the sewer pipe and then you have the supply and return water pipes. That keeps that heated. Well, then the vacuum sewer plant, though, after it gets to this point, then you have to heat trace it all the way to the lagoon. So, this is a hugely energy intensive uh, system and one that we're going to be looking at this fall uh, to see what we can do about that. This is just a picture of that utilidor. Uh, there's a sewer pipe. You have a couple of water pipes. There's a guy's boot for a uh, scale of reference. But where these are above ground, um, loses a lot more heat than our buried systems. So that's, that's essentially why it takes a lot of energy. Now here's, here is the... Uh, Basically, uh, the uh, information we gathered from the survey, the blue is the electricity, and, and uh, the vacuum systems use a lot more electricity than the rest of them. So the blue is electricity, and the red and green are, or uh, the, the green is the uh, PCE piece of the electricity, and then the red is the fuel oil for these vacuum systems. Now this is just, uh, this is a, 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 the systems that circulate their water and have gravity sewer systems. Um, you can see great variability. Some of the outliers kind of make you question the data. So, um, and that was where I wasn't getting a real good prediction. There's just awful lot of, awful lot of variables. And this is uh, the, the, one of the surprising things that you'll see at the end here is that the the villages that haul their own water and use washeterias that don't have running water, actually their, uh, some of their energy uses 
were higher than ones that have water delivered to their homes, which was kind of a surprise to me. And then this is just your typical run-of-the-mill regular, well, based kind of regular water systems where they don't circulate, don't have to add much heat. And um, so here are some, here's some averages. Um, the blue is per household. So in these circulating uh, vacuum systems, uh, the average is costing almost 2,000 a year per household just for the energy to run that system. Now whether it gets passed on to the homeowner or whether the village pays it, we didn't figure out who's paying it. We just calculated it by the number of homes and then by individuals. So per person is around $500. This, is the, this was the surprise to me here was that the washeterias uh, with honey buckets were higher than the, you know, per capita. And the, on, the only uh, answer we can come up with there is maybe it's because the activities in Washeteria, a lot of them have electric saunas, they're drying clothes, which are really high energy consuming devices that would normally be done in the household uh, in these other systems. They usually don't have Washeterias. But. Um, EPA, EPA has a guideline that a, a water utility should not cost a homeowner more than about 5% of their median household income. So what we did was we just looked to see on average, and we plotted it also for individual, but um, how much of the median household income, median household income goes to pay for the energy to run the water system. And we're over that 5% on uh, three of the uh, uh, three of the, those, so, and I think one, one or two villages were up around 16, 14 to 16 percent of the median household income for energy for the water system. That's just not real sustainable. And then here's, uh, here's the different systems and just a breakdown, summary breakdown of the findings of what it's costing on average to the whole community. So, uh, the average is almost 300,000 to run the circuit vac systems. So there's the observations that kind of combines Carl, kind of what we're seeing with this. The, the, uh, basically, it, it impacts health. It impacts health because the more it costs, the less likely people are to pay it, and people will choose to use honey buckets or haul their water because they can't afford it. Uh, so that's, the, that's the, basically the link. Water systems are some of the largest energy consumers out there. The new designs, at least, where we work are focused a lot more on energy, uh, but we have a lot of uh, systems that were designed and uh, when things were a lot cheaper. The audits are giving us really good, in, really good information, detailed information about what the, the situation really is, um, but they take a lot more time. Um, the older systems essentially were designed to present, pre prevent catastrophic failure, Boilers were sized to the largest they could be. Controls were very basic. Um, needs to be, we're, we're saying there needs to be some R&D to define some of the improved things, improvements that can be made, and then get those as well as the, the best practices we have out there for the design and the operations and get it shared amongst everybody that's doing this work within the state and try to help these systems. So with that, that's the end. And, uh, Again, uh, just drop your uh, quiz off at my table there. Thank you.
Yeah, thanks, Ginny. Um, first off, uh, the description of this presentation was actually uh, preliminary results of the AA and use energy efficiency study. And this, we're just kicking this off right now, so it's actually going to be more of the methods and the approach and whatnot. So you actually could have, have an opportunity to influence some, uh, 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 some of the outcomes associated with this study. Um, so first off, what are, what are the objectives associated with this study? We wanted to uh, provide estimates of building energy consumption by end use, such as heating, cooling, lighting, et cetera, stratified by building type location and other parameters. Um, we want to leverage existing data sources and in infrastructure to the greatest extent possible, and then establish a baseline, a framework and baseline for future in, uh, uh, energy and use studies and as a performance measure system in the future. Um, the study is uh, intended to identify and rank opportunities for energy effic efficiency me me uh, measures and to pro provide an overall baseline. Um, it's actually several distinct studies that, that we have going on. We, we have, we're breaking it down by, by climate zone. Um, we have Southeast Alaska, where we're, we're going to be looking at, at, at a lot of these uh, practices in Southeast Alaska. We'll get to exactly what those are in a minute. We're going to be looking at South Central Alaska um, and he, climate zone um, eight right there as well uh, with uh, both residential and non-residential um, buildings in those areas. Also, this is part of the study, we're going to be doing uh, some rural community village building baseline in 225 communities, a street lighting on a call out a mini study, and uh, in conjunction with uh, providers such as uh, ANTHC and Village Safe Water, a rural water and sewer, and calling it a mini study as well. Um, I'll go through this a little quick, but what are some of the guiding principles uh, that we have involved here is, is leveraging existing studies, maximizing existing data, um, you know, providing a, a framework for baseline study and follow-up studies at potentially five and ten years. Uh, the state has an objective of 15% uh, in uh, uh, by the year uh, 2020, so it's, it's just to be looking at that. Um, utilize available data to gauge progress in intervening years as well, and um, sharing, knowledge, uh, sharing knowledge gathered with, with, with the overall study. And then the cost breakdown in the overall study, about 70% urban, and about 30% uh, rural cost breakdown for, for, for the overall approach. So what is it? I mean, well, what is the, how are we going to go about doing this? First off, we want to establish the frame. Uh, total population buildings of one is trying to understand. Two, select a sample of the buildings. Three, survey the sample buildings. Four, estimate energy and uses based on survey and area data. We've been talking quite a bit about area data through this, through this process. And then finally, uh, developing a data framework that can actually um, parse, aggregate, and disaggregate the data and various building kit characteristics. Um, so this is the variety of options that one can use to doing an end-use energy analysis, looking at um, more of a simple approach with doing simple cal uh, uh, calculations, moving more towards an engineering uh, re re uh, regression analysis, and um, or an engineering calculation and energy audit and building models. I mentioned that we have five different studies that we're going to be looking at, several different studies that we're going to be looking at, and we're using a combination of these various methods to actually do our overall end-use energy analysis. Um, just wanted to touch a little bit on schedule. We do have, you know, as I said, it's ongoing. Data is, the survey process and the data collection process is being kicked off this Saturday as part of uh, October's end-use uh, energy efficiency. Um, month and concluding with uh, within a with meeting a milestone objective with uh, Alaska Energy Authority and its partners for the, for final report by 228 2012 and I just saw a typo in there but that's okay 
Um, I want to touch a little bit on the what is the approach for the, the various studies that that that, um, that we're, we're, we're going to be doing. Um, again, I already t touched about this. We're going to be breaking it down by climate zones six, seven, and eight: uh, Southeast Alaska, Rail Belt, and basically the the interior and the rural North and West as well. We'll talk about how we're going to be collecting that data in the future as well. Um, residential, looking at single-family, multifamily, and mobile home um, in terms of building type uh, stratification. Uh, geographic region. This is just some some basic data that we have up front to what what we're looking at. It's uh, nothing uh, earth-shattering, but you know, in the rail belt profile, about 34% of the housing types for 2010 census is multifamily. Mobile home is 6%, and single-family is about 60%. Uh, um, again, rail belt profile, pipe gas utility is a primary fuel source, uh, followed by uh, heating source, followed by um, uh, fuel oil, kerosene, and ele electricity as well. Southeast Alaska, 36% of, of the houses is multifamily. Single family is 54% and mobile home is 10%. The point is, is that we're going to be breaking out um, a lot of these um, residences by both thermal and behavioral and appliance use as well. Um, skip over that. We're going to be, uh, the approach is looking at, is going to be using the ARIS data um, for thermal cal calculations and then collecting it, it, it follow-up information with survey data as well. Um, so again, looking at what is our approach is actually residential end-use energy analysis for the rail belt in southeast. Um, it's going to be uh, utilizing the energy rebate program and following up with, with, with building en en uh, energy modeling. Um, this is uh, the thermal calculations associated with um, AK warm. We're going to use this as the baseline for thermal calculations in all of our, our, all of our independent study areas. I mentioned that we're going to be following it up with, with a internet and, internet and phone-based survey. And a uh, little busy, but this is actually the, the, the survey system that, that we're going to be using to actually collect a lot of this data. So if, you're going to be, if any of you get, get, get a phone call, respond to it in, 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 a, very, in a very thoughtful and uh, thoughtful manner. The, the questions, it's, it's quite an involved process. We, we finalized the, question, the questionnaire this morning. It's 195 d different questions that, that, that we're, we're going to be going through to, to collect the, 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 the various data that we're going to be doing. So non-residential, again, um, uh, building upon existing data, there's, you know, looking at the commercial energy audits, uh, the, D the ADOT energy audits, uh, the REALS program, ARIS data, and AK Warm commercial. There's already a lot of great data coming in. We're hoping to supplement this data to establish this, this uh, overall baseline that um, here in, uh, by next year. Um, to, to get this data, we're going off the, anchor, uh, off the various parcel counts, tax assessor databases that's around. This is just Anchorage um, out there and, and, the various, and the various building types that, that we have. Um, um, I did get shocked. Um, there is a warehouse there. Uh, and interesting enough, 859 different instances for the different non-commercial building types all the way up to uh, um, daycare at 28. Uh, we always kind of chuckle, but the, you know, the bar lounge is at 33. It's just a, uh, just a little bit more than, 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 the data, than, than daycare. But the point is, is that this is the type of buildings that, that we're going to be sampling from for, uh, for non-residential. Uh, non uh, parcel count by, by year built, again, Anchorage. Um, this is just, just kind of a teaser of what we're going to be getting. Um, when, was, when, when, were, when were the buildings built? Um, looking, no surprise, 1970 to 80 is when most of, of the buildings, at least in Anchorage, were when, 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 they, when they were built as well. Uh, parcel count by square footage. Um, uh, 
again, looking, most, most of the buildings are in the 10,000 square foot to 25,000 square foot um, range that, that we're likely going to be um, looking at as well. Again, ooh, again my apologies, uh, a little, little dark there, but the, di ver the different building types that we're going to be looking at are food services, warehouse and storage, institutional such as education, healthcare, lodging, office, mercantile and retail service, um, and of course the, the overall other, uh, other category as well. So how are we going to do the in-use uh, in energy analysis and calculations? It'll be for non-residential, it'll be a combination of an engineering calculation um, supplemented with uh, energy ratings and, and utilizing an overall building energy model to come up with the overall end-use calculation. Uh, many of you are interested in the rural north and west, obviously for, for the theme of this conference. Um, our approach here is actually um, targeting three communities and utilizing much of the existing data that we've, many of you may have heard about already throughout this conference, such as the EnergyWise program with RuralCap, um, the ARIS data, the HFC Reels data, and the PCE data as well. We're going to be targeting actually four communities with, with the rural approach. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, Selawik, Nustuyahuk, and Savunga for the village-based approach, and um, Bethel for the, for the hub community. Why we're targeting this is that we have about 100% coverage of all homes through the EnergyWise Rural Cap program. Very good data collected there to, to get to have residential data in place. ANTHC has has done their uh, and the AREC program has has excellent data in, in those three communities as well. We feel that we can we can uh, 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 capture that that data in the water and sewer program. And the data that we're not going to have is is the is the non-residential buildings in those particular communities, the school, tribal council buildings, and whatnot. So that'll be supplemented with with, with an on-the-ground and survey-based questionnaire as well. And with the idea of coming up with an um, overall, very intense, deep-dive look at at energy use in buildings, aside from transportation, Steve, um, or, uh, that's not going to be part of this. Um, just a quick look at, at at the various data and where it's spread out across the. Um, across the state. We're going to be looking at this data and, and coming up with, with the overall uh, energy end use analysis as well. Um, just as just the, the, the prevalence of various areas data that we have. Again, we are, we are going to be looking at Bethel with 69 building counts right now with, with the surveys and supplementing that with, uh, again, with, uh, with uh, Survey walkthroughs. We're working with with, an, uh, with a Bethel-based uh, energy rater to collect a, a lot of the, a lot of this data as well. So in Bethel, we're going to have a very good um, cross section of, of energy data for uh, for the for the city of Bethel. And the city of Bethel has been very supportive of, of this effort as well. I, sh I should add. Um, so again, we uh, the rural north and west survey approach is we're going to work with these three, these four communities. You're going to use existing ARIS and EnergyWise data, QC validate data through new audits, and then we want to supplement uh, a lot of the the, the, the EnergyWise uh, in Northwest AK Village using a cluster sampling approach. There is going to be EnergyWise is being kicked off again in Northwest Alaska, as we speak actually this this, this week, and we're going to again have more data coming from the, for, for, from the villages up in uh, northwest Alaska through the EnergyWise program. Uh, hub approach, again, I've, I've kind of already went into in a little bit of detail on that about how we're going to do that, a two-stage a two survey approach with uh, residential surveying followed up by, uh, followed up by uh, site surveying as well. Um, coming back to the energy end-use calculation uh, for the rural northwest, an, energy ca uh, an engineering calculation supplemented by uh, energy ratings will come up with 
what we hope to be is a fairly intense, fairly deep dive look at, at energy and use in, in the various communities and be able to present that um, accordingly. Um, again, kind of dark, my, my apologies here on this, but we wanted to talk really briefly about what this potentially could mean like for uh, integrated resource planning, in particular here in, uh, in Southeast Alaska. Um, Southeast Alaska is in the process of implementing their, their, their integrated resource plan as we speak, I believe, and with the objective of coming up with, uh, with a 20, 30, 50 year look at um, energy and use and how, and how, um, and how you can look at uh, energy planning uh, into the future. A lot of times IRPs are focused in on generation only, whether it's um, hydro. Was predicated on 2002 uh, world price of diesel which was less than half of what it was in 2008. So, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't see that uh, there's a significant decline in the overall consumption of fuel that would result in the cost per gallon going up. It would be really hard to, uh, to, to defer that out. You'd have to be talking to the fuel delivery people like Crowley to see, you know, was there actually an impact. But I think the overall volume of fuel being delivered is the same or more. Any other questions? Yes, please. Um, this question, I guess, is mainly to see. Um, I saw that the Denali Commission was redesigning one of the prototype clinics to be under a thousand square feet, and I was wondering, as I'm assuming ANTHC is involved during that redesign of the clinic, is that accurate? Uh, to some degree. I guess I was wondering if you were going to try to do some sort of lead in the design effort, like lead, silver, gold, whatever, or uh, design it to IECC or some sort of energy standard for that prototype. Yeah, we really are not the right people to ask that question. We're doing the energy stuff, not the clinic stuff. We both worked in that before, but don't now, and what you're talking about happened after, so sorry. I would check with uh, Nancy Merriman or um, Dan Williams at ANTHC. Any more burning questions out there?
it is very much so now. So anything that they can do to bring down that energy consumption so they can stay <coughs> with that cap translates directly into um, money in the community's pocket, very significant amounts, because they paid full fare for any kilowatt hour usage above that community facility limit. Yeah, those, those incremental numbers could take you from 16 cents a kilowatt hour to 50 cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah. So the, the, the incremental numbers are, are just enormous, absolutely. Terribly high. So in that, that kind of situation, then is when they go over that, that per, the public facility kilowatt hour, does that mean then my water bill goes up higher? My household water bill goes up higher? Is that how the revenue comes in to pay for that? Do you know the answer to that? Uh, the energy cost is part of the calculation to determine the water rates for sure. So the answer to that is yes. And we're paying particular attention to that. We've uh, one bill at Selwick that was going on. It will not go on. Uh, it's not going on this year, but it did in 2010. And it, that's the link where we're finding that people are using less water per person than they should be by health standards of what should be the per gallon consumption. Is that part of the reason why? Because, or th do they have a household cost per water? Uh, there's a uh, flat a charge per household okay. for water and sewer, and the, re the reduction in uh, electricity usage will eliminate the problem that Mira just pointed out, and it is a significant issue. Uh, that won't be an issue. Um, so that will increase the savings to the water treatment plant, which will reduce the overall rates to the end users. But to what extent do you have people who have live in a community that has a system, but they, because it's the household cost gets to be so high, they stop using it and start hauling water? Yeah, we, we have a little bit of data on that, but uh, not enough. I know uh, from living in Kotzebue for five years, it's a, it's a particular problem in some of the villages in the Northwest Arctic where the, the, the cost per month is just so high that they haul water from the river instead of getting water from the water. And that's unfortunate, and we're doing what we can do to prevent that from happening. But I don't have statistics, and I don't, don't think have good data. On that. We don't have good data yet on on how bad that situation is. Does the census provide any of that kind of information anymore? Uh, no. No. This is a great discussion. Anybody else want to have any questions? Any comments? Join in. Quick comment. Uh, I've just been really struck recently by, and this gets back to the title here, uh, how far can efficiency take us? Um, you know, we, we're seeing success rates on a per building basis. Uh, HFC's residential is 30 plus percent savings. And we're seeing the same in commercial buildings, maybe 30 plus savings. Carl was talking about like 50 percent savings, I think, and some of the water plants as possibilities. And the real challenge here is. So you can do that for a smattering of buildings, but we need to hit all the buildings that way, or all the ones that still have a lot of potential. So to get this 15% goal, I guess we have to hit um, half the buildings with 30% energy savings, or you know something rough like that. So it seems like saturation is the real issue we're dealing with, and, uh, and uh, I guess we just need to be able to touch every facility out there that's not efficient. Sean, actually, um, you mentioned the 15% goal. I'm not sure that everyone 
In fact, I'm not sure that, including me, is aware of, of what you're referring to when you talk about the 15% goal. The legislature uh, session before last set a goal of 15% energy efficiency improvement per capita by between 2010 and 2020. And so that's what WH Pacific is helping us measure as a base, getting a baseline measurement on that, uh, as well as 50% 50, 50 uh, renewable goal by 2025. For electricity generation. I guess I would, my thought is that is that if you tried to do a little bit in, in all the buildings, you would probably, you might have more trouble reaching that than if you had enough information to know where you could target your big winners and be, and, and maybe be kind of the, start with the low hanging fruit and then just and get there incrementally. That would be my guess. What, what is the date? And it seems like if you can save 50% on a water system, that would be a really good place to start, as opposed to doing a, um, you know, an weatherization in maybe someplace like Mira's house where she knows her energy use for the last 15 years, and she's already very efficient. You probably, your, your, your cost per reduction is not gonna be as, as high. Uh my concern, Sean, with your, not your comment, but the issue is, uh, you know, we can focus on the water plants and that, and that saves money for everybody in the community. But my, uh, what I've noticed, and, and it appears as though your data today showed it, that uh, the energy rebate program has not really worked as well at all in rural Alaska as it has in, uh, in the rail belt. And uh, that's a real concern to me. It looks like, I mean, some of your data, you were showing three homes uh, in 5,000 homes in Anchorage and three homes in, in oh, Northwest. The coverage, the coverage. <laughs> coverage. Yeah. It works well when they do it. Yeah. There's a whole other program that's a rural energy efficiency and it's a weatherization program. And it serves primarily rural Alaska. Well, and it's an income-based program. They do thousands of homes right now in rural Alaska. So there is a... I think they were talking specifically about the home energy rebate program, which was targeted primarily people that were not uh, eligible for legislation. I don't know if AHFC has done it yet, but I know that there's been discussions about getting weatherization raters certified to do um, inspections under the rebate program because one of the problems you run into is if you're in Gullivan there's only two houses that qualify for the rebate program but they can't get anybody in there because there's only two houses to see and the weatherization people can't do that work so those people are literally left out in the cold. That, that sounds like it may be a great answer to that
we, you know, we're making every effort, but uh, it's nearly impossible. So we do what we can. mentioned the energy audits for five or six communities you conducted so far and I was wondering if the if there was any follow-up with the community agencies or anybody in the community as to what they can do or how they can work with you or anybody else to follow up and follow up on the energy audit or the findings of the audit in terms of improving efficiency. Yeah, in the uh, community the money to implement the recommendations and are in the process of doing that. In uh, one of the other ones we've completed, we also have the money to do it. In the others, uh, we will be working with them, have suggested that they apply for EECBG grants, uh, tribal grants to implement them, which they are eligible for, but we'll continue to work with them to find ways to implement the recommendations. But that's a, an excellent point. The audit does no good if you don't implement the recommendations. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Did you have a, a quick, quick question? I'll ask you until the supply starts stocking these energy-efficient items that are like such a great panel that we've actually gone over time you guys are using your evening time I'm not sure if there's someone here to tell you what's happening next I think there is a gathering a social gathering this evening and thank you all for coming we really appreciate it and we'll see you later on